0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at org. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If uh, you think about it, last time and this time, our, our text last week and our text this week represents a sort of recapitulation of the theme that Peter opened the book with. In the very first line, in in 1 Peter 1, verse 1, he spoke of Christians, believers, as elect exiles, God's chosen exiles. And as we've worked through his letter, those two themes uh, are the the two themes that we've kind of balanced, because there's something a little paradoxical. On the one hand, about emphasizing the chosenness, the, the love, and on the other, the exile the sense of alienation. And so now Peter comes back around to that theme and hits both of those points again. And, and this is not certainly the, the end of what he has to say, but maybe it's the, it's the end of the beginning of what he has to say. So he comes back to this idea of chosenness and exile. And we looked at the chosenness last time. This morning, we're going to contemplate the exile, what it really means to Peter to be exiles, and more importantly, how exiles ought to live. Peter gives advice, insight, instruction in how we as exiles ought to conduct ourselves. As you see in these two verses, there are two conflicts that exiles face. One is an internal conflict. It's the conflict between the flesh and the soul. And the other is an external conflict, the conflict that exiles have with the world around them. I want to look at the first conflict to begin with, that internal conflict, the war between your natural impulses and your higher needs. Christians are exiles on the inside as well as on the outside. When we think about exile, usually we picture the external conflict, the external tension. When We say we're exiles, we think of the example of the children of Israel in exile in Babylon like a people who've been taken from their home and sent into a foreign land. And that's the way we think of exile, all of the challenges of not belonging in the world that you've been placed in. But Peter actually begins earlier than that. And he says there's a fundamental conflict that is ours because we're exiles, and it's not out there, it's in here. There's a conflict within us. When we think externally, exiles versus the world it's easy to think of this us versus them conflict but when you think about your internal alienation it's it's you versus you and that's a different kind of struggle if you believe in Jesus then the defining conflict in your life is on the inside not the outside it's on the inside you're now alienated From what Peter calls the passions of the flesh. The passions of the flesh. And he says that you should abstain from them. Abstain from the passions of the flesh that are making war against your soul. So it sounds like what Peter is saying is, the soul is good, the body is evil. And everything the body wants should be denied. And everything the soul wants should be indulged. So that hopefully, if we're spiritual enough, then over time, we will almost be like as disembodied as you can be and still have flesh. We won't care about the things of this world. Uh, The physical reality will be indifferent to us. All we'll care about is high-minded spiritual things. That must be what Peter has in mind, but actually it's not. If you look at his words, flesh and soul, I've done a little reading on this, and And all of the commentators urge you not to read too much into that separation between flesh and soul. There was, in Peter's day, a a philosophy, a way of thinking that believed that the physical world was evil and that the spiritual world was good and that in order to be good, we should suppress the physical. Like, everything that was physical was bad. It tainted us. It corrupted us. And the way to be pure was to separate yourself from your body. Now that idea, which was common to Hellenic culture, has actually survived in Christian culture, right? You still see traces of it every time we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and say that what Jesus promises you is that if you believe in him in this life, then one day you'll die and your pure and innocent spirit will leave your evil and corrupt body and you will go to live in heaven for eternity as a spirit, If that sounds like the gospel to you, you didn't hear the gospel from, for example, Paul. Because Paul thinks the hope of the gospel is that after you die, your spirit is separated from your body. But don't worry, at the last day they will be reunited. The vision for human beings going forward for eternity is an embodied one. The flesh, the physical world, it can't be inherently bad. God made it and declared it good. We're intended to be incarnate, so to speak. So that's not what Peter's talking about here when he says the passions of the flesh are at war against your soul. You might think of it this way. He's saying something like this. He's saying your natural impulses, your natural impulses, the thing that come naturally, your natural desires, those are at war with the higher needs, the higher concerns of the soul. So what comes naturally to you isn't necessarily what's good for you. He's echoing the words that he used in chapter 1 in verse 14 when he said, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's the idea. You used to be governed by a certain way of thinking. You used to follow the passions of your flesh. You used to follow those natural impulses. And now, because of Christ, you're in conflict with them. Like Peter's point here, he wants to put us on guard against the things we naturally gravitate toward. Comfort and self-protection, and self-gratification, because these things are actually in conflict with the ultimate personal good of peace and security before God. We live in a day when, thanks to the miracle of credit, you can follow the passions of your flesh. Right? It used to be in the old days, in the sad old days, people used to have to work their whole lives for the things they wanted. Sadly, uh, or perhaps providentially, depending on how you look at it, it's not like that anymore. Right? As a young person, you can get out of school, you can qualify for credit, and you can have all the things that you want. You want a nice house with a good security system because you're going to have a giant flat screen TV, and it all of that is within your reach. You don't have to wait for those things. You don't have to work for those things. You can have those things if that's what you want, if that's what will make you happy. And you can hold on to those things for as long as you can keep making minimal payments on them. But, you know, if you look around, you see that a lot of people are beginning to question whether that's such a good thing. There's a wisdom in basically... Borrowing all the money that you can to have all the things that you want and then being stuck with it for 10 years? Because you realize the things that you want when you're 30 are not the things you wanted when you're 20. And you're still paying off the things you no longer want. And so it makes you wonder, maybe the things I want are the problem. And I should want different things. I think Peter's speaking to us in a similar spirit here rather than than indulging, gratifying the passions of the flesh or natural impulses, just doing what seems natural to us, instead, the the tension, the conflict is, there's a higher good that we ought to be living for. Peter's making a bigger point, though, I think, than, than the wisdom we're now discovering, the sort of minimal, let's get rid of our stuff and not have debt, which is all good, I think, but what Peter has in mind is something greater than that. He's not just talking about feeling better about yourself, renovating your life, feeling, um, having a, a cleaner conscience about all your stuff. Instead, he's talking about getting past the captivity, the domination, the dominion of the passions of the flesh, those natural instincts. Which is tough because we tend to think that whatever is natural is naturally good. There's a reason why when you go to the grocery store, everything's natural now. Like everything's natural. It's all full of vitamins and goodness and uh, and, and sugar too. But but the natural cancels that out. Right? Now it's all good and organic and, and wonderful. And it so it must be what we need. It must be right for us. Whatever comes naturally must be right because we tend to use nature as a synonym for good. Like if you want to know how you should live, you should look at what comes naturally. Right? The worst thing you should do is, is like go against your nature. Try to do something that's not natural for you, uh, that just puts you in a false position. But what Peter is saying, and this I think is one of the most challenging things that, that, that Christianity has to say to us, at least ethically, Peter's saying you can no longer trust what comes naturally you can no longer trust that what comes naturally is right or good. That actually, because of the corruption of human nature by sin, what comes naturally might be the worst thing to indulge in. Not the best. There might be a higher thing to set your eyes on. You can see here how the war inside you could lead to a war outside. Because on the outside it is an accepted truth. like it's, it's an unquestionable truth that whatever is natural is good. So when we abstain from the passions of the flesh in a world that insists that whatever is natural is good, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be tension. If the, the, the battle inside you is resolved in favor of Christ and His calling in your life, then there will be this larger tension that is yours because of this exile. So let's talk about that, the war between the exiles and the world. We have a tension within us, but we also have a tension on the outside. It's interesting, when Peter gives this advice to exiles, if you look at the the wording closely, you'll see uh, Peter's advice, this is, Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, you notice he doesn't say so that if they speak against you as evildoers, he says when they speak against you as evildoers. Because Peter's assumption is clearly that they will. That they will. If you're in conflict with your own passions, and that puts you in conflict with the world around you, it sets you apart from. The world around you, a world that always thinks it's right, then you have to understand that to be an exile makes you an evildoer in the sight of the world. It makes you seem suspicious. If you're not on board with the thing everybody else believes in, then you're going to look suspicious to those who don't understand. There's a wonderful scene at the end of of the movie Casablanca, which uh, Lori had never seen until we got married, so she has a lot to thank me for. Uh, But Casablanca, if you remember at the end, Humphrey Bogart, Rick, is standing on the the runway watching the plane take off. Uh, Next to him is Captain Renault, who's the head of the French police. And the, the, the German major, Major Strasser, comes up, but too late, In order to stop the plane, he's angry. He whips out his gun on Humphrey Bogart, who has, of course, to shoot him. So he's just shot the German major in front of the head of the police. And then the police rush up. And Humphrey has this look on his face like, "Uh uh-oh, now I'm going to have to face the consequences. But Major Renault turns to the police. He says, Major Strasser has been shot. And then he utters this famous line, round up the usual suspects. The man who killed him is standing before him, but he says to the police, round up the usual suspects. It's a funny line at, at the end of the movie, but if you think about who the usual suspects tend to be, the usual suspects tend to be the outsiders. They tend to be the ones who aren't like us, the ones who are different, and because of that difference, they're suspicious. Either they don't belong here because they're not from here, or they don't belong here because they're not like us, Whatever it is, there's something about that, that that makes it natural to assume that those must be the evildoers. It's The reason why, after Rome burned, Christians had to be punished, not because Christians had caught the city on fire, it's they just seemed like likely evildoers because of how different they were. Peter says that now that you're in exile, the world is going to do more than just disagree with you. As an exile, the world is actually going to look at you as an evildoer. It's going to speak against you as an evildoer. And that's why he says you should keep your conduct honorable. You should do good deeds. You should behave yourself. You should be exemplary because you're an exile, likely to be seen as an evildoer. When people accuse you of doing wrong, don't refute them with your words. Refute them with your actions. Show them how you live. That you're not the evildoer that they think you are. Does that kind of advice sound familiar? Like in the world, people are going to think of you suspiciously. So what you've got to do is you've got to be especially good at everything. You've always got to be your best. You've always got to be... Better than everyone else at everything. That is the advice that outsiders and immigrants have been giving their children for centuries. You find yourself in a culture that is not your own, in a land that is not your own, raising children there, and suddenly all the anxiety. It's not just you on the line, it's your children as well. And so how do you equip them? How do you equip them to deal? Well... You raise them to be exemplary. You raise them always to make the right choices, never to get into any trouble. Whatever is good, don't just do that, but do it better than anybody else does. Set such a high example. Be such an achiever that there could never be any question that that you're one of the bad people, that you're one of the evildoers. Maybe you're not from here, but be so virtuous that people forget that. They forget that you're an outsider. They forget that you're an exile. They accept you. People who are from here, people who belong, can get away with a lot. There's not a presumption of guilt already against them. But you're not one of those people. There's a presumption of guilt against you, and so you've got to work constantly to overcome it, constantly to be seen as not an evildoer, if you want to get ahead, you have to work twice as hard. Not just to get ahead, you have to work twice as hard if you just want to get a fair shake. Right? That's the advice we've been given for centuries. And it's tough advice to hear when you think about it. It's tough to hear this advice. For one thing, it means you're always on. Someone who has to be twice as good at everything, constantly, at all times, is always on. Like There's no relaxation. It's not that I have to be really good at work and when I go home I can do whatever I want. No, because there are eyes on me there too. There are consequences to my choices there too. So everywhere in life I have to be exemplary. Everywhere I have to be honorable. I can't give my accusers anything with which to come at me. And that's an exhausting way to live. It's it's like asking people to live as if every moment of their lives, they're being judged. Which is horrible. But the question is, I mean, isn't it also true? Are we not being judged every moment of our lives in some sense by the eyes of others and by the eyes of God? I think we are. It's hard advice for another reason, though, which is that it just isn't fair. It's, it's tough to live in a, in a world where some people get this advice and other people don't. Where some people can just do what they want to do. They can just follow those natural impulses and everything's going to work out and other people are told, you've got to be good at everything. You always have to excel. You cannot afford not to. It doesn't seem fair. For parents to have to give advice like that, for pastors to have to give advice like that, seems inequitable because everybody deserves the benefit of the doubt. Nobody should be judged on their worst moments, on their worst deed. We shouldn't assume the worst about anyone. You shouldn't have to work twice as hard just to get a fair shake. But let me ask you something. Another question to think about. Do you think Peter's concern here ultimately is with what is fair? I think Peter's concern with something higher. He's calling us to something higher, not not how things ought to be, but how to live with the way things are. He's not saying, look, you're in exile, and and that's the way it should be. You're going to suffer, and hey, you should suffer. That's awesome suffering. It'll sanctify you. It's good. You should go after more suffering. No. But you will suffer, you will be tested, you will be tried. You will be spoken of as an evildoer. That's not going to change. The question is, how do you live in that world? In that unjust, unequitable, sinful world that everybody around you is telling you is just natural and must therefore be good because whatever is natural is good. If you think about it, this advice that Peter is giving us is the advice that we give on how to live life as the powerless. How to live life as a person without power. Because if you're powerful, you can get away with a lot. There's a lot of stuff you can do, and if you're rich enough or famous enough, the consequence is they don't come home to you. You can get away with things if you have the power, but Peter is speaking to sojourners. He's speaking to exiles. He's speaking to people who, by definition, do not have the power to get away with stuff. If living like this, the way Peter calls us to live, if that doesn't seem necessary to you, if it seems maybe like it's overkill, it could be that you haven't come to terms with the extent of your powerlessness. Because people who have power or think they have power are the ones who think they're not being judged. The ones who think they can do whatever they want and get the consequences that they desire rather than the consequences that they deserve. If you think you have power, then you think there's plenty you can get away with inside and outside. But Peter is speaking to God's chosen exiles. And he's doing it specifically, I think, emphasizing the exile to remind us, to teach us how powerless we really are. To strip away from us our comfortable illusions about our power. Years ago, I traveled to England with some friends, but I had a day on my own before everybody else showed up. I was in Ely, which is a little cathedral town near Cambridge, and I was taking the tour of the cathedral. And uh, you may not be like this, but me, when I go to foreign places, I want to be confused as one of the natives. I want people to think I belong there. I don't want them to know that I'm one of those ugly Americans, right, who's, who's going to embarrass himself everywhere, mainly because my parents took me to Europe several times, and they have the opposite philosophy. They like everybody to know we're not from here. And so it embarrassed me as a teen, and, and teenage embarrassment is such a trauma. It shapes you for the rest of your life. So I was in Ely Cathedral taking the tour, and there was a woman who came up and spoke to me. It was clear that she thought not only I belonged there, but she thought I worked there. I was kind of dressed in a, like a black t-shirt and I had a jacket on, and I think she thought I was one of the priests or something. And I thought, well, this is wonderful. The problem is she was speaking to me. And if I answered, I would reveal that I didn't belong. I could pass as a native as long as I didn't speak up, as long as I didn't open my mouth. But the moment that I spoke my, my, my words... My accent would give me away, and she would know that I didn't belong. And that's the way it is for us as Christians a lot of times. We don't look that different. We don't live that different. Like You you can't go and look, oh, you're driving that car. You must be a Christian. Oh, you've got one of those houses. I assume you're a Christian. We don't stand out that much in comparison to the world around us. And as a result of that, as long as we don't open our mouths, we may not give ourselves away. And it's tempting to do that. And if you live that way, not giving yourself away, then you might develop the illusion that you're not in conflict with the world, that people don't have a problem with you, that they're not looking at you with suspicion. And maybe they're not, but it's only because they don't know who you are. If you open your mouth and start talking, they will realize there's something wrong with this person. There's something not right about her. They all start asking questions. And, and that will, will give you a sense that maybe you're not as comfortable, that maybe you don't belong as much as you thought that you did. Peter speaks to us as the powerless. As exiles, he tells us how to live without power. But he doesn't mean it in the way that you might think. When he emphasizes your powerlessness, he's not saying, you don't have the power, you've got to be ruled over by others, you've got to submit to the world around you. I think a lot of times Christians, I mean, we talk about exile, we we play the exile card, but we do it in a kind of self-serving way, and the anxiety that leads us to talk about this isn't... isn't uh, a biblical one, it's more like an anxiety about the fact that we're losing our power. Like Christians talk about being in exile now because like, we live in a society that doesn't naturally default to us, naturally defer to our opinions. We're losing our power. And as a result, uh, all sorts of fears are being stoked up. I, I once knew a guy who believed that any day now the United Nations was going to round up all the Christians and and bring us to relocation camps. Back then we called those people crazy. But uh, now we call them Facebook friends. We're surrounded by this kind of fear and this exile talk, but it's not motivated by the same thing that motivates Peter here. Peter's not saying, I'm really worried about the direction of the Roman Empire. Things are really going bad here. And he's not saying, look, I understand that the Roman Empire is pagan, and right now we've got to be in our best behavior, but trust me, someday we're going to run the Roman Empire, and then we can live according to the passions of our flesh. Not at all. Like Peter is giving us a, a blueprint for living without power for the rest of our lives, for the rest of the church's life. It's not his intention that this will ever change. I think a lot of our anxiety, it's driven by our, our fear that we're somehow losing something that we were meant to have. The problem, I think, isn't that we're losing our power. The problem is that we thought we had it. How powerful we thought we were, and it makes us uncomfortable to lose that, when the reality is we never had it. The power was always God's. The power was always God's. Whether we flourished, whether we were persecuted, whether we ex- were accepted or we were pushed away, it was always in the hands of God. The power was always his. It still is. No one can take it from him. Nobody can take it from him. Not them and not us. At Worldview Academy, over the summers uh, where I teach, we work Our teens very hard. We wake them up really early in the morning, and we put them to bed really late at night. And by the end of the week, they start complaining that they're not getting enough sleep, and so they start sleeping in the classroom. Unacceptable. And they say, we're not getting enough sleep. We need a lot of sleep. And what we say to them is this, uh, at home you can sleep for free. But your parents have paid good money for you to be here. We're going to keep you up and keep teaching you. (laughs) I think Peter's saying something similar here. He's saying something similar here. Like, keep your life honorable. Like, do good deeds, but only in this life. You can relax. You can follow your natural inclinations in the next. It's just for now. It's just for now that you have to live this way. Abstain from the passions of the flesh in this life. Do good deeds and live honorably, and you can relax in heaven. That's the message, hard as it is. The hopeful side, though, is that when you're called to live like the powerless, you're being called to live like Jesus. The Jesus that we follow wasn't a powerful man, he wasn't a ruler, he was one of the powerless. And he saw his purpose, interestingly, as not gaining a position for himself, but rather as directing all the power and all the glory towards the Father. In John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says about his work on earth, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So in order to come here, to take on flesh and dwell among us, he set aside his former glory. And he lived his life on earth, doing a work whose object was to glorify the Father on earth, to bring glory to Him. That was His purpose. In the Shorter Catechism, question number one, one most people know whether you've studied it or not, asks what is the chief end of man? What is our highest purpose? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's the same idea. It's to live how Jesus lived somebody says to you that your purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, they're just saying, be like Jesus. Live the way that Jesus lived. Care about what he cared about. This is how you live when Jesus is your your example. Living like Jesus is not just a means to an end. Following his example is something that we don't do uh, just to get something. Something that we do to be like him, to glorify God. The reason that we should abstain from the passions of the flesh and do good deeds in the world is to glorify God. If you look at what Peter says one more time, I mean, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Think about what Peter does not say there. He doesn't say, do good deeds so that when they accuse you, you can point to your good deeds. They will see that instead of punishing you, they should reward you. That's not the advice he's giving. Typically, that is the advice we're giving when we say like this. Live such a good life that when people say that you're a bad person, you can point to the evidence of what you've done and convince them otherwise. That's not what Peter's saying. Peter's actually making a huge chronological jump from the accusation to final glory. He's not assuming that if you live a good life and good deeds, when people look at you sideways, once they get a good look, they'll recognize, oh no, you're you're exemplary. Not only are you not a bad person, but you're the kind of person I wish everybody would be like. No. He says, they'll accuse you of doing evil, and maybe, maybe they'll follow through on that. But ultimately, the good that you do will bring glory to God. I mean, you can think of examples of people who lived exemplary lives, were falsely accused because of their outsider status, and despite all of their goodness, they weren't uh, vindicated, but were actually condemned, in some cases even killed. Isn't our whole faith built around exactly such an instance? Jesus, who lives an exemplary life, whose good deeds are unquestionable, who's spoken against as an evildoer, he doesn't point to his life and get off on the charges. He's executed. He's punished, despite not having been guilty for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Because one day, on the day of visitation, on the day of judgment, on the last day, they will look and they will see and they will glorify God. So what Peter is actually saying to us is to live this exemplary, this honorable life so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, on the day of judgment. He's not focused on how to live a good life. not focused on how to get out of trouble. He's focused on how to glorify God at the end of days. That's what he's calling us to focus on as well. There's a war within us. There's a war outside But these are wars that only Jesus can win. These are wars that only his spirit has the power to wage. There's a voice in your head and a voice in my head saying, none of this is right. None of this is really the way that we have to live. This isn't the way we want to live. We don't want to live in exile. We don't want to raise our children to some higher standard of conduct. We don't want to have to struggle against our natural desires and say that the things that seem right to us aren't. But the voice inside our heads that says these things is the voice waging war on our souls. The Spirit has the power to bring victory over the passions of the flesh. The power of the Spirit will bring victory over the principalities and the powers of this age. We can trust in God. Trust in God to wage war on our behalf in these conflicts that we find ourselves in. And in the meantime, the thing we shouldn't fight is our identity as exiles. We should embrace it. We shouldn't live lives where we're longing for more power longing for more advancement for ourselves or for the Christian cause, we should not long for the desires of the flesh or long for the embrace of the world. Instead, like Jesus, let our prayer be, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening.